We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finn, and we've got a great show for you. This is the Hanukkah Show. So we've got lots of Hanukkah music. We'll be talking about Hanukkah in the second half of the show. In this half hour of the show, we'll be rebroadcasting an interview with Rabbi Dr. Stephen Fine, who wrote a book called The Menorah, a definitive work about the menorah. It's great stuff. We've got a really awesome story at the end of the of the show this week because we of uh, the Thanksgiving weekend we had to record the show on Wednesday so believe it or not between last Friday when we recorded the show and Wednesday there was really only one piece of news and that hit world news and that was unfortunately the terror attack where one young man was killed, and I know his uncle, so it's a little bit of a personal thing. So there, that's the only news, and that was already covered by the world news, so we don't have to cover it. So we're not going to have any news. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to go straight to the interview with Rabbi Stephen Fine. Herschel Fidman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. We have Professor Stephen Fine, he's a professor at the Yeshiva University in New York. He's a professor of Jewish history, has just recently written a book called The Menorah from the Bible to Modern Israel. And that's what we're going to be talking about. The Menorah. How are you today, Professor Fine? Great. Hello, Detroit. How are you? It's we're doing well here. Okay, so looking at the book which I find very fascinating myself. Um, you seem to have this like fascination with the menorah that didn't seem to be that just recently say, I'm going to write a book about the menorah, but it seems like something that was like been piqued your interest, maybe even when you were a kid. Is that true? Yeah. It piqued my interest even as far back as I can remember as a little kid going to show. Absolutely. I've been with the menorah through high school, through my BA, through my MA. Almost all of my books have menorahs on the cover at this point. So when my kids call me the menorah man, there's more than just a joke in it. Mm -hmm. So what what do you think about it? Fascination. What what grabbed your attention way back when, even as a little kid? There, Steve. Um. Well, first of all, I love fire, and so that was an easy one for the Hanukkah menorah. But then, um, right after the Six-Day War, when I found out that it was a symbol of the state of Israel as a really little kid, um, I just jumped. And uh, remember the day in May in 1967 when my mother was crying and the day in June when she was exuberant. And that was a, a moment when the, the light of the menorah seemed so evident to everyone and uh, has stuck with me ever since. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Okay, now let's let's talk about the menorah. Is the the menorah first appears 
in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, when the Jews are commanded to make a sanctuary, and this is supposed to be a symbolic expression of light, and the temple's supposed to have light. It wasn't used necessarily to people should be able to see in the dark, per se. <laughs> I, I would like to know, though, there are examples of altars that predate like the biblical need for an altar. Are there, or were there any evidence that there was menorahs that were used in other services pre the building of the sanctuary in the desert, Stephen Fine? Um, first of all, the word menorah comes from the word ner, which means light, and it means a lighting fixture. And so there are lots of lighting fixtures uh, throughout the ancient Near East, um, often to represent divine light, though not God of Israel's light. Um, but more to the point, just successfully, to provide light in very dark sanctuaries, um, like the tabernacle, like many other places where people would go for um, religious experience, but nothing with these branches. In other words, there are lots of lampstands that are tall and have a lamp on top, or even multiple lamps on sitting on the top, but the idea of a lampstand with the seven stalks coming out of the sides, um, that doesn't appear before before the Torah. Okay. Now, so there's all this discussion about the, the menorah in the Bible, that it was the way it's described in the Bible. You, you bring it out in your in your book. I remember the first time reading about this when I was studying the book of Exodus and just scratching my head. It's it, the the physical description of it is very very complicated, and there's things that it's there's bulbs and flowers and knobs and branches and and what what is the significance of all that? If you're going to have a menorah and you want to have light, okay, so you have like this, uh, as you say, like a tall reed thing, a, uh, something straight, and you put a couple of lights on it, and voila, there you go, you're good to go. But this seems to have more than that. Yeah, um, it has an awful lot more than that because the description of all the tools and parts of the tabernacle are given in, in such detail in the Torah, and it's given twice. And so first you do it, then you did it. But the overarching theme is make it according to the image that God has shown. In other words, there's a heavenly prototype to what's being made down on the earth, so it has that deep correlation between what human beings are trying to do down below and what God is imagining for us from up above. Um, the complexity of the description of the menorah, like the other parts of the tabernacle, I think it's because you can't put an object like that in words. Sometimes I'll give my students a paper cup and ask them to describe it in detail in words, and that's even hard. Can you imagine trying to do something as complex as the menorah, um, which uh, medieval rabbis looked at and said, I don't know exactly what's going on here. There's just too much going on. So if you lived in the Iron Age or before, you would look at the menorah, you'd think of lampstands of your period, you might have even seen the original, and say, oh yeah, that's what this description is. But for those of us looking way out, it's a kind of poetry. Giving that much detail is a poetic attempt, a compulsive, compulsive and poetic attempt to make this thing real, um, where our imaginations fail us. Okay. Now, the menorah that was used in the temple, in the, first in the sanctuaries and then the various temples, it says in the in the, the book of Exodus it has to be made out of 
pure gold. I have a friend who is a goldsmith. He was actually commissioned to do the menorah, which is in the Lubavitch World Headquarters. And he, he, when I was, he's I was, an amazing man, by the way. Yeah, Herschel Peckers, he really is. Yeah, and he's an amazing man. What, he was showing me how the thing was done, and he did it. He kind of cheated because he used gold tubing and iron rods. And I said, "Well, what are the iron yeah, rods for?" The easy life. Yeah. So he said, "Well, because if we're doing it out of gold, the weight of the gold would be such." that the outer branches would be heavier than the inner branches. And what you would have, instead of having the menorah in a straight line, which is what's mandated, it would bow outwards. So he, according to, to Herschel Pecker, this goldsmith, the menorah, just the making of the menorah, the fact that it would be able to exist in the shape that we have it, or we imagine it, was itself miraculous. Would you like to comment on that, Stephen? Fine. Sure. First of all, pure gold never means really pure gold. Uh, in fact, there are commentaries from the world of the Talmud that describe that having red gold and green gold and blue and uh, white gold. Why? Because gold always has to have something in it to, to strengthen it. That, that's number one. Um, number two, um, I, I don't know about Herschel's technology, but um, I know that he used, just as people in Jerusalem who've recently made a great big menorah, have used a, uh, a, a base metal interior for the for their lampstands. Now, I point out that the uh, Torah doesn't describe the shape of the branches uh, of the menorah. In fact, it doesn't call them branches. It's so that it doesn't have that tree resonance that medieval rabbis uh, see, but rather uh, describes them as kanim, as reeds, right? Uh, as reeds, yes. Reeds. Throughout the Second Temple period, all Jews read it as straight branches. Throughout almost all of all Jews read them as rounded branches. In the Second Temple period, Jews read as representing the paths of the planets from both the historian Josephus and from the philosopher Philo. And so the round branches have been standard. Um, there is a blip in the system where, in, um, it, where Maimonides drew an image in his commentary on the Mishnah, uh, an early rabbinic text. Um, where he put straight branches and said really explicitly, but I don't draw very well. Mm -hmm. However, Abraham, Abraham, he really to make straight branches, which sway into the Spanish tradition interpretation, and then into the Yemenite tradition of of interpretation of the menorah, and then it found its way in the eighties to to Rabbi Menachem and the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and it spread from there. But it's been a very, very minority tradition. Having said that, we have an idea what the Torah's branches look like, but we know that by the century BCE, it's universally round until the minority draw. Right? Mm -hmm. Understood. Okay, there's a lot of speculation about what happened to the Menorah in the Second Temple, but I've never seen anything anywhere discussed. What happened to the first menorah, which was built by Bitzalel and lasted through to the destruction of the first temple by Nebuchadnezzar? Got any insights on that one, Steve? It doesn't find its way listed in the text like the um, the own brief, the Ark of the Covenant. It's just to any of the sources that say what happened to this stuff, starting with Jeremiah. Uh, it, but it, there is this generalized notion that a lot of the objects were taken off to Babylonia, and we know that the big 
in coming back from Babylonia was that many of the objects didn't come back. And for example, according to me, the stones of the high priest's breastplate, which had direct communication with God, um, didn't come back, uh, which required great ingenuity uh, by the, the Chachamim of the age of Ezra and Nehemiah, the leaders of the community, to figure out what to do having a communication with God. And so a lot of these kinds of objects got, got lost and continued to get lost. Um, one of the things about gold, though, is it never quite disappears. So um, it, it's reused and reused and reused. Even from ancient there are very, very few gold objects that continue to this day, into some cups and stuff. And so, as I tell everyone, I don't know where any of the various menorahs of Jewish history are. There is not a um, But I can do that. Maybe um, bring it in your wedding because it doesn't disappear. Mm-hmm. Understood. You're leading into the next question that I have, and that the the Ark of Titus, which is in in Rome, depicts it way up in the corner over there. It's really hard to see if you're actually standing next to it. Is the person carrying a what we call a menorah? It's a seven branched candelabra thing. It's like really big compared to the person who's. This is not some little tabletop model thing over there. That's no. been that's been adopted as like the symbol of the state of Israel, and is the prevalent uh, opinion as to what the menorah in the temple looked like. So what about, tell us about then this depiction of the menorah in the Ark of Titus, and that would segue into, well, I've always thought that the Romans who were like really gold hungry probably just took it and melted it down, but I did hear a lecture by a colleague of yours, Rabbi Benjamin Blach, say that he believes it's in a sub-basement in the Vatican. So if you could address both of those questions, Professor Stephen Fine. Um, Sure. Um, first of all, the Titus presents one, um, a number of the objects brought from the temple in Jerusalem and paraded through Rome in the year 70. Uh, they were put into a place called the Temple of Peace, which asserted Roman dominance over the world after an incredibly difficult internal discussion uh, that led to the choice of Vespasian and then Titus as emperor. And so the uh, menorah that was uh, represented on this uh, frieze, on this uh, bar relief, along with the table that's represented on this bar relief, and the uh, horns of the temple, the huts or throats, um, were put on display close by, so anybody who went to see um, the reliefs could walk 150 meters or so down the hill and see the actual menorah up through the 2nd, 3rd, or 5th century. We're not so sure which. Um, the um, image that you see there is likely one of the menorahs that existed in the temple. There were a lot of them. Um, anybody who's ever been on a synagogue committee knows that you get rules from the synagogue community to the artisans, right? Build a Torah ark, put lions on top, but no one ever tells them all the little details. My guess is that whatever very rich Jews gave this menorah, uh, no one said, by the way, the base is supposed to be X and Y, and they made this one, and that's the one the Romans liked, and it's just simple as that. Um, as to the menorah at the Vatican, it's a myth that's been spread since the 1960s. It's a response to the Second Vatican Council. No one ever said it before the 1960s. Um, it appears nowhere in Jewish literature. Um, when the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe went to Rome, 
uh, according to stories uh, told by Baruch Schneerson. Um, there's no mention of seeing a menorah. When rabbis have gone to Rome in previous generations, they've looked for all sorts of temple stuff. They never found it. When the Israel Antiquities Authority was bothered by government people and went looking in the Vatican, there's nothing there. There is no menorah at the Vatican. Rabbi Belize can think whatever he wants. Okay, fair enough. I'm not going to challenge him. In other words, it is an urban myth that firm Jews like, Orthodox Jews like, mm. conservative Jews sometimes like, Reformed Jews like, Israelis like. But let me tell you something. I don't have horns on my head, and there are people all over America and the Midwest who think I do. Uh-huh. Okay, we're going to put it on the same level as that. Yeah. Okay, so there's there. let's talk about the menorah as, as far as iconography goes. There's lots of things that could have been Jewish symbols. The menorah got hopped on by all the things. Even I was thinking about myself. I've I've run two major programs in this city. One of them was called the Jewish Judicial Seminar, and our logo, logo was a menorah. And instead of the base, we at the bottom we had the scales of justice. And now I've just started cool. a new, I've just started a new organization called Jewish Ferndale. And so what's our logo? It's a fern with a menorah placed overlaid on top of it. So it's really become, How fun. Yeah, it's really quite acceptable. It's like this is like yeah, we're going to use it. We're going to use a menorah of a Jewish temple. Let's now, if we're saying that it's because it was from the the temple that it was used. Well, listen, ark the, the ark was more important than the than the than the menorah was. So how is it that the menorah became the icon? Um, first of all, making an image of an ark means making a picture of a wooden box. It's nothing special looking. You got the, you like the cherubs on the top. Yeah, but you have to really simplify in order to do it. And once you've simplified it to the sort of image that can be put as a branding image, it gets more and more complex. And anybody who's ever tried to do it has had to add words or something else and explain it. So it's really not a good branding image. And there's the the table, which is even worse branding image because it's like putting a picture of your dining room table on a on a on a, on a symbol. And when Bakochva tried it in the second century, it failed to the point that people today have a hard time identifying a table when they see it. Um, the menorah, on the other hand, has a great ability to be simplified and simplified and simplified. And even if you find a piece of it with a couple of branches and the central stock, you know you're looking at a menorah. It is the Greatest branding symbol, perhaps, before the Golden Arches. It's an amazing simplification <laughs> that everybody recognizes. In other words, as Christians later on, or Christians actually about about no Christians later on in the 14th century picked up on the cross because it was a very simple way of expressing very deep theological beliefs. Jews during the first century, first century of the um, of the, of the common era, picked up on the menorah for that very thing. They could put it on a prayer lamp, they could put it in a synagogue, they could put it um, in a tomb, and anybody can draw it. As opposed to the other image, try asking people to make the image of the table for the showbread. It will look like your dining room table. Ask people to make the Ark of the Covenant. God knows what comes out. But ask them to draw a menorah, and it will come out every time looking like a menorah. And, and that's the amazing branding capacity of an object described in the Torah as coming straight from God mm-hmm. in a way that even Moses couldn't understand. Okay. And he required a person with visual capacity to go through all of those biblical verses and all of those ideas and look at that image shown by God and say, okay, that's what it's talking about. Now, once you 
take a menorah and simplify it, somebody's four-year-old child can draw it, and everyone knows what it is. And that's an important piece for community to have that level of simplification so that whether you are the most educated interpreter, whether you are the most simple interpreter, everybody says, that's a menorah. Okay. And that's the Jews. So archaeologically speaking, how far back would you say that the the icon of the menorah being used as a Jewish symbol uh, shows up? The first one is in 39 BCE, the last of the Hattonians, and taken on, uh, was being chased by Herod, who became Herod the Great and rebuilt the temple, um, and was deposed. And Mattathias used both the menorah and the image of the table, which again isn't very successful, uh, on a coin in order to rally Judea against the Romans and against terror. Mm-hmm. That's a, the first time, and then it spread from there. Mm-hmm. Just an interesting side note. We had, uh, I noticed in the book that the credit for the picture of that coin was from the collection of Shlomo Mosiah, and I had never heard of Shlomo Mosiah until last week, because last week we had a representative from Sotheby's who was having a Judaic. Uh, auction of the collection of Shlomo Masayef. And I didn't understand the importance of it last week, but now I, I really see that it, that it is quite an amazing collection. So he had these coins from a thousand years ago. Um, so, but... He was an amazing man, too, Shlomo Masayef. He was an amazing man and, and a Balstagop, and who gave huge amounts of money for all sorts of uh, Jewish studies, along with having one of the best collections of archaeology and Jewish art in the world. Indeed. I'm assuming once I see the name, it's coming up all over the place. What about the menorah versus, say, the Jewish star as, a, yeah. as an icon? Jews have used stars for a long time. Jews have used stars for a long time, right? Um, not just because of Vincent van Gogh and Starry Starry Night, but that's part of it. If we look up into the sky, and Jewish time is structured based upon the stars and the planets, and the Jewish is based upon the moon, right? And so, and the and the lights on top of the menorah are the set according to Zechariah, according to Zechariah, the seven eyes of God, the sun, the moon, and the five visible planets. And so, the heavens have been very close to Jewish experience for a long time. But it wasn't until uh, the 18th century when the Jews of Prague chose this image with a symbol of a Jew's hat in the center to be the symbol of the Jews of that community, and it spread from there. Um, it, it seems that the reason it's been so popular is specifically because it has just enough Jewish content to be recognizable, but not enough to look too religious. And so Jews from left to right adopted it um, as a simple cipher that wasn't biblical and wasn't so religious and said Jewish community. Um, and for some people it was read as religious and some people it was read as not. A menorah can hardly ever be read as not religious. Mm -hmm. And so it had the advantage of being a little bit more quiet. Uh, If you were to, if you remember the uh, parade in the 60s, where people would walk down the street holding up their fingers in the shape of a V, right? Mm -hmm. Anything from the Jewish peaceniks to social anarchists to it all meant something different, but they were united in the same parade with the same hand signal, right? Mm-hmm. And so a Star of David became a, a, a way of unifying the Jews visually, um, even as it itself didn't have a whole lot of content, which made it very different from the menorah. Mm-hmm. I was actually noticing in the uh, collection, which is being auctioned, 
that there is a ketubah, which is about 700 years old, which is illuminated just in an amazing way, and there are pentagrams all over it. Not six stars, but five. And I know from growing up and, you know, seeing all those those horrible movies that the pentagram was like the sign of the devil. And here it was on a Jewish document. So... I guess we kind of it kind of developed out from the five to the six over the course of time. So no, 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 they had both at the same time, and um, and symbols change meaning. Remember that in Germany, either the double meander became a swastika, but in India, it's a sign of good luck. Um, when they found an ancient synagogue in Ain Gedi near the Dead Sea, and it had a six, it had what looks like a swastika on it. The excavator, who's the child of Holocaust survivor, cringed, even though he knew that this was had nothing to do with Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, images change meaning over time. One of the things I wrote in my book is that the challenge of a symbol like the menorah is that it causes us to remember and then re-remember and then re-remember again. Uh, based upon who we are and what we are, um, those things that are dear to us, and it's, it's a challenge to keep our connectedness and to remain vital all at once. And the light of the menorah provides uh, access, at least for me, to some of that uh, possibility. Okay. We have one more question. This is going to have to wrap it up. I'm just fascinated. I could talk about this for another hour. But the people, when you think menorah, I mean, this is December now, and people think menorah, they think Hanukkah. And Hanukkah, we light this thing that we call a menorah, which technically speaking really is not a menorah. It's a Hanukkah. But the acceptance of the universal acceptance of the of the menorah and the celebration of Hanukkah, if you just briefly touch on that, Professor Stephen Fine. Sure. First of all, um, the word Hanukkah was used in Sephardi communities in the Balkans and seemingly other places for a long time. But um, Ashkenazim, Jews from Europe, and many other places always refer to the lamp for Hanukkah as a menorah, even though they don't look the same as a seven-branch menorah, one's a Hanukkah menorah, and one's a seven-branch menorah. Why? Because they both mean lampstand, right? They both mean a, a fixture for light. Now, if they both mean fixture for light, um, why would we use the same name for both? Because every time you light your Hanukkah menorah, it's um, in memory of the menorah of the temple, uh, and when we light our Hanukkah menorahs, we are doing it together with the Maccabees, those pure and holy ones, according to the prayer book, who um, went into the temple and rekindled the temple, a uh, menorah. And so when I light my lights at home, I'm rekindling the temple menorah, and like the Maccabees, I'm giving new hope to Jews, and at least to my family, um, year in and year out, uh, on was essentially the winter solstice, the darkest day of the year. Wonderful. That's great. Okay, so we have been interviewing. We've been talking with Professor Stephen Fine, the professor of history, Jewish history at Yeshiva University. The book is called The Menorah, From the Bible to Modern Israel. It is published by Harvard University Press, available on Amazon and wherever one goes to buy Jewish books. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely delightful speaking with you, Professor Fine. I've had so much fun. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. After a while. Oh, you and a happy and a healthy Hanukkah. Okay, that's going to do it. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Jewish Hour.
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Up next, for your listening pleasure, this is Shmuley Unger, and it's called the Dreidel Song. What's a dreidel? A dreidel means a top. And Hanukkah, there's a special top that has four sides. It's got a point at the bottom, square, so it's got four sides. And it has letters, Hebrew letters, that stand for the words, a great miracle happened there. And depending on what letter it lands on the upside depends on what happens it's a gambling game actually for one you have to put money in for one you get half the pot for one you get nothing and for one you get to take the whole business so this is called the dreidel song let's listen Nesgadoil, 
Assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We are doing the Hanukkah show. We're playing Hanukkah music exclusively. This is pretty much all new stuff. Uh, the closer is a song from last year, which was became it's becoming a classic, and it's, it should stay a classic, and people should be around for decades. The closer, so stick around for the closer. A lot of the Hanukkah songs are parodies. They take music from some other whatever and uh, some other song, some other what, and uh, put Jewish words to it, Hanukkah words to it. Some are decent. Some of them are really cringy. So I'm not playing, obviously not going to play the cringy ones. This one I thought was kind of sort of like, it was cute without being too kitsch. It's called, it is a parody. It's Yossi Desser and it's called A Hanukkah Carol. In the hazer zet men ses chanika. Meket geschanken, geschmake fanken, de latkes schmecken as we fan. In the kinder zai spielen sich mit. Heidela. Frost and wind, 
Es brennen Flammen, in die Menschen sei spielen sich things are better the way they used to be, like the crisp feel of a cool autumn day, the serenity of a baby sleeping, or the feeling of coming home after a long trip. Franklin Cider Mills makes cider the way cider is supposed to be. Its old-fashioned, clear, crisp taste reminds you of a cool autumn day. Located in the heart of historic Franklin Village at 14 Mile and Franklin Road, Franklin Cider Mill has been making cider the same way for over a century. Always fresh, with no additives or preservatives. You just can't buy Franklin Cider in any supermarket. Franklin Cider Mill is open from Labor Day weekend to after Thanksgiving from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Come visit Franklin Cider Mill. It's kind of like coming home. Herschel Finman here, listening to the Jewish Hour. If you're listening to this show any other day than Sunday, that'd be November 28th, I think it is. Don't bother. The Cider Mill's closed. They uh, took out a contract till for so many Sundays. We play it for so many Sundays, and so if you're listening on Sunday, go get your body over there and go get some cider, because today is the last day. And we appreciate having Franklin Cider uh, Mill as a seasonal sponsor. They've been a seasonal sponsor for 26 years. As long as this show's been on the air, they've been a sponsor, and greatly appreciate it. And the cider, it hasn't changed. It's still the best. But if you didn't find it out till this year, well, you'll have to wait till next year. Up next, we've been playing a couple of Yiddish songs. This one's in English. This is the Maccabees. How could we not have Hanukkah without a new Maccabees song? This one's called Illuminating Hanukkah. <laughs>
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Here you're listening to the Jewish Hour. This week is the portion of Miketz. It's read in the synagogues. It's in Genesis chapter 41 and following. It is also the week of Hanukkah. <coughs> this week, we well, so what are we going to do? So we're going to show how the two are related to each other because... I guess maybe 93 times out of 100 when Hanukkah comes around, we'll be reading the portion of Miketz. Sometimes if it happens that the first day of Hanukkah is on a Saturday, so they'll still read Miketz, but it'll be the second Saturday, and they'll have a first Saturday. It'll be 
will be uh, Vayeshev, which is what it was last week's portion. But the, so therefore, it's always read somewhere in Hanukkah, you're going to have Mikates. So, and it's by no coincidence. What's the deal? Well, what's Mikates talk about? The beginning talks about Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh dreamt that he saw seven fat cows eat seven skinny cows and seven fat ears of grain eat seven withered ears of grain. And it was predicted thereby that there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. The question is, why is it seven? Because we see it didn't need to be seven. No, it could have been two. What happened? The first year was a terrible famine. Jacob says, we have to go get grain. They have enough grain for a year. The second year, they have no food. They have to go back to Egypt and get grain. By that time, there's a whole ton of I'm a whole big story, and Joseph says, I'm Joseph, etc. That's all in the next week's portion. And Joseph mo- and Jacob moves down to Egypt, end of famine. So they only needed two years of famine. So they only needed two years of famine. They really only needed two years of plenty. But God said, dream, seven years and seven years. What's the deal? And what's that got to do with Hanukkah? This shows we're going to show a little one-upmanship. The number here is seven. Seven is a natural cycle. The world runs in seven, seven days of the week. There's seven years in a sabbatical, sabbatical cycle. There's seven weeks between Passover and Shavuot. That's all natural. And that's what Pharaoh was. Pharaoh was a naturalist. Later on in the book of Exodus, when God, uh, Moses comes to, to uh, Pharaoh and says, God said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I don't know who God is. Get lost. What was he saying is, I don't know the God that you're talking about that's above nature. If you, you want to say that the forces of nature are indicating that you have to leave, well, I can, that's something to contend with. But something higher than nature, above nature, that's what eight is. Eight goes beyond the laws of nature. And indeed, that's why it was that Hanukkah, the miracle was eight days. If the miracle had been six, would it have been less of a miracle? Would it have been the same miracle? If it would have been three, if it would have been two, two would have been okay. They had a slow wick maybe, but three? No, it had to be eight to indicate that we're not like pharaohs. We're not like people who are just stuck in the mire of three dimensions. Jews relate to the almighty superseding, going beyond, stretching the laws of nature. If you think about it, the whole idea that there's even Jews today stretches the laws of nature because all those nations that existed 3,000 years ago when Judaism first started, they're not around anymore. They got absorbed, they got sucked in, they got dispersed, non-existence. Jews? still here. And there's this, there's a old line I heard a long time ago. If Moses found himself in downtown Jerusalem right now, just transported from 3,300 years ago to right now, okay, he'd be able to have a conversation with somebody. He'd be able to relate. Oh, what are those things you have? Oh, those are tefillin. Oh, you're doing commandments from God. You're doing mitzvahs. He would be able to relate. He'd be wearing funny clothes, but in Israel, there are people who wear funny clothes too. So I don't think anybody would even notice 
Let's say you took Julius Caesar Lahav deal from 2,000 years ago and stuck him in downtown Rome. In addition to the fact that he's wearing funny clothes, and people don't dress like that at all, but they have a different belief system, they have a totally different language, a total different way of relating to the world. Judaism has been consistent, and that's because we have the Torah, and God gave us the Torah, and we are able to transcend nature. Speaking of transcendence, this show does not transcend time. We're going to get out of here really, really, really soon, so don't go away. We've got a great story for you at the end of the show. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Hi, this is Spex Howard. The Spex Howard School of Media Arts is proud to have been a sponsor of The Jewish Hour and bring quality radio programming to the community. While much of the funding comes from its sponsors, listeners like you help keep The Jewish Hour on the air. Please send your tax-deductible donation to The Jewish Hour, 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. That's 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. Your help is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want to get in touch with me? If you're listening to RabbiFinman.com, wait till the end of the show and then just click on the homepage. If you're listening on Spotify, JKS Network, uh, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Radio, whatever else you listen, wherever else you might catch a podcast, well, you can open up another tab and go to RabbiFinman.com and you can right there on the homepage, it has contact us, makes it life easier. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to make life easy and enjoyable. And you'll also find all kinds of other things on RabbiFinman.com. Old shows, archived editions of various media in which we present the Torah and Judaism. It's all there. And the very important, we say it every week, the, uh, the donations page. We are in December. We are still owing for October. So it's October, November, and now it's December. They get pretty, uh, they're pretty patient. We've never gone more than four months. And after four months, someone said, hey, uh, <clears throat> you know, so, and we managed to whittle it down from four months down to zero. So now, so it's December. We're, uh, so we have to raise for October, November, December. If we can do that before the end of December, I don't do appeal an appeal. And you're coming now to end year end. And you have to like uh, show Uncle Sam you're all up together and up to snuff with what it need, you need to do as far as your charitable giving goes. So uh, why not consider, no, I'm not asking a question, consider donating to the Jewish Hour and all of the other causes which are associated with the Jewish Hour, Jewish Ferndale, etc. And if you do not like giving your gift via Internet, you can drop a donation in uh, any type of mailing item, a mailing receptacle, and send it off to the Jewish Hour. 1725 Pinecrest Drive, for Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. The Sansa Rebbe, I'm not sure we live, I think we're think, talking 1850s if I'm not mistaken, really liked Hanukkah. Okay, In fact, he liked Hanukkah so much, it was like his thing, and everybody knew that he lit, liked Hanukkah. He would, he would get these candles that were like six-hour-long candles, Maybe they weren't six hour, but they were huge candles. 
and they would he would l- light them and sit there the whole time that the candles were burning. Your obligation is really only to sit for like a half an hour and they have to burn for an hour. But he would sit there the whole time. So there's one time, and he looked forward to it. It was like a big thing, and people would come to the Sanzer Rebbe for Hanukkah. One time it happened that he walked outside instead of lighting the candles. And after he walked outside, he walked back into his study. And a period of time went by, and he walked outside again. And this time he came in and he lit the candles with such tremendous joy. So now sometimes he's got time. He's got all these candles that are got to burn down. So somebody said, excuse me, but what? why did you walk outside, walk into your room and walk back outside again before you lit the candles? And he said, I wanted to check. It says that the amount of livelihood is appropriated on Rosh Hashanah. And I felt something was up. So I went and I looked outside and I saw, yep, as my suspicion had proved that the appropriation for this year has already been used up and we're only four months in. How are we supposed to live another eight months with all everything spent? And I went into my room and I prayed and I cried. And then I came out and I said, let me take another look. And I went and I looked again. And indeed, the appropriation of godliness, which was appropriated on Rosh Hashanah, is gone. But then I remembered, same thing happened last year. And we made it. And he lit the candles, and he was sitting by the candles. And I wish you then that you also, Hanukkah starts Sunday night, the 28th, goes through till the last night is December the 5th, December the 5th at Jewish Ferndale, we've got, oh, have we got stuff. We've got uh, Touch a Truck. We're together with the JCRC is going to be um, adding adding light to the world. They have a whole program over there. We have the Michigan Resources is going to be talking about lead and drinking water. We have David Nefesh doing music, food, fun, you know, crafts, the whole business. It's free at 6 o'clock, December the 5th. Come on down. That's going to do it for the show. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We have a chance to educate you. We're going to be closing with what I hope becomes a Hanukkah classic. It's I Want a Puppy for Hanukkah. I want a puppy for Hanukkah. Want a puppy, want a puppy, want a puppy, want a puppy. And I'm going to get just what I wanted, yep. Go get it, go get it, go get it, go get it. I'm going to get a puppy for Hanukkah. Get a puppy, get a puppy, get a puppy. Some kids write this for their Christmas gifts And they send them all off to their Santas But I don't trip off a list for my gift I'ma get it cause I got eight chances That's right, eight nights, festival of lights Go hard for a week with a plus one So y'all keep stressing, be good, learn lessons But Hanukkah is the best fun And you can laugh if you want to But I'ma get a puppy for Hanukkah Don't